This is Jess Explores. I'm Jess and I work in Mare, the SFI Research Center for Energy, Climate and Marine. Join me today on a new episode of Jess Explores. Today I'm going to geek out about my most favorite framework, the United Nations Conventions of the Law of the Sea, also known as UNCLOS or Just Laws or the Law of the Sea. And yes, you have to say it with a little bit of oomph behind it. I'm not going to lie, it's my most favorite thing ever, just by name because it's so piratey. Um, so anyways, let's talk about the, ro- the elephant in the room. When it comes to oceans, who is responsible for what? And that's really where the law of the sea comes into place. It took nearly 10 years between when the third United Nations co- conference on the law of the sea in 1973, I think, started, and uh, and then it was finally signed in 1982. I think that already gives you an indication that anything ocean-related takes a very long time to move forward, and one of the reasons is because more knowledge becomes available. The other reason is because it is quite difficult to manage and to enforce any management on marine resources because it is such a vast resource and so different in so many different countries and that has different implications for the coastal states and the countries. So it came into power in 1994 and then it has been signed by 157 countries. So the law of the sea governs the management of marine resources and spaces. So in practice, that means that a coastal state has jurisdiction over 12 nautical miles beyond the baseline. Now, the baseline is the legal geographic line of a state's coast. So the baseline and the 12 nautical miles outward are known as the territorial sea. the law of the sea has such an eloquent way of putting what a coastal state has to do in this area. They call it rights and duties to protect and maintain marine health. So I paraphrase a little bit here, but what is important is that a state cannot just take, but they have both the right to take, but also the obligation to protect the resources. I think this one is a key message of the law of the sea, that there is always a balance between what you take and how to protect. Uh, Beyond the territorial sea, a state exercises sovereignty over the falling 200 nautical miles, which is also known as the Exclusive Economic Zone or the EEC. So within the EEC, a coastal state has limited jurisdiction, and that is because it's very difficult when it comes to monitoring and to really enforcing anything because 200 nautical miles is just a lot of water. You probably heard of some of these issues that have arisen in in and around Hong Kong, Macau, Singapore, and all these exclusive economic zones that they have around there. Some fascinating debates that are happening there. So once you are out of the 200 nautical miles, that's when the two, when the high seas starts. And the high seas, or rather the idea of the high seas anyways, this is again one of my favorite parts because in theory, anything goes because the resources belong to everyone 
and yet they belong to no one. So in theory, everybody has rights and everybody has obligations. Again, it comes back to this idea that there is a balance and that that balance should be created and maintained by its users. So you may think that this is where all hell breaks loose in the high seas, but our understanding of what is out there beyond the 200 nautical miles is actually quite small. Most of the activity that we have at the moment, um, and that's both human activity, but also our knowledge about animal activity, um, all of that happens fairly close to the shore. And that has to do a bit with um, geography and then, of course, with bi biology, because some animals, they need the upwellings that come from the land masses. And they typically happen closer to shore. And within the upwellings, the water will circulate. And with the circulation, there is food sources that are pushed upward where animals will then be able to feed easier or feed more consistently. Whereas the ocean itself really doesn't have all that much food uh, when it comes to uh not having any geographic spaces that are like mountain ranges in the water. And, and this is so fascinating. There's so many documentaries that you could watch. You could binge to watch that for days just because it's so, so very fascinating. But I'm digressing here. Let's move back to the law of the sea. So what is the issue then really? Uh, and what is the purpose of the law of the sea? We already defined what we can and can, can do in the 12 nautical miles and the 200 nautical miles. Technically, there really shouldn't be any issues. But the trouble begins when we look at monitoring because it's a very difficult operation to do that. First of all, there's harsh conditions. There's weather and waves and all of that. So within the exclusive economic zone, it is very hard to follow up on every human activity. What we need to be able to do is to trust whoever operates that they actually work in good faith. Um, personally, I don't believe that anybody that is working offshore in harsh condition and I mean really harsh conditions. I don't think they mean to do any harm, but sometimes we don't act very smartly and then things happen and then we may get away with it once and then we keep doing them because it may make operations easier and all of that. Like I totally understand that from a, from a human motivation kind of idea but then again we don't know the effects of our actions often because with the oceans we don't see it until it is way too late and then that's where trouble starts so monitoring is a really big issue there the other issue is the idea of co-using space and the idea of conflict management when it comes to using marine resources. And now I could talk hours about marine spatial planning and integrated coastal management and all kinds of interesting case studies because there's a lot of them out there. Particularly um, Australia has a lot of interesting case studies 
fascinating stuff. But the short of it is that um, they're all dealing with conflict management and who has the rights and who has the obligation and who is in the right and who is in the wrong, if there really is anything as right or wrong here. Because even if we all agree that a state itself can determine what is allowed and when it is allowed, there is always lots of gray areas. And that is where, for instance, fishing grounds and offshore wind development often come to, to a grinding halt because we don't really know what we can and cannot do or should not do. And I think these sectors, and I, I don't just mean aquaculture and offshore wind, I think many sectors like um, shipping and oil platforms or, you know, whatever have you, they're often portrayed as mutually exclusive. Now, personally, I don't think that is really the case. I think they could operate side by side, but that comes back to marine spatial planning and all of these planning mechanisms and monitoring mechanisms that each coastal state has for themselves and have decided to move forward for themselves. Um, so the law of the sea then gives us an idea of what really is possible, but it doesn't enforce anything because the law of the sea itself doesn't have any enforcing power, but it builds the foundation for the European Union. And in going into more detail, it also builds the foundation for coastal states and, and nations and island states and, and countries. And really, everybody that has a coastal state, it's really the building block of how to manage marine resources. If you want to engage with me on social media, follow me on Twitter at Jess underscore explores or follow me on Instagram at Jess underscore explores underscore podcast.